CO2 is not like most pollutants. When you put it up into the atmosphere, it hangs around for a long time and it continues to have a warming effect for a very long time. So it's very difficult when people talk about fixing climate change or solving climate change. That's, that's really on some level not possible unless you're willing to take these pretty radical steps and try to counteract climate change with another level of human intervention. If we just stopped emitting CO2, if we stopped emitting CO2 tomorrow, which would be an excellent idea, but is not going to happen, we would not have solved climate change. We simply would not be making climate change worse. If you actually want to reverse it so that, you know, instead of getting warmer, temperatures would either stabilize or become cooler, then you have to look at these much more serious forms of intervention, either trying to suck CO2 out of the atmosphere or by, and or, I mean, they would be potentially complementary by rejiggering the stratosphere. I don't know about you, but I like Earth. Most of my favorite things are on Earth. I would love it if life could continue on Earth, human life especially. But that's not how things are going. The climate crisis is no longer something that's happening in the future. It's happening right now. You get it. You're living it. So what are we going to do about it? Well, what if we got radical? It was technological progress that got us into this mess. So maybe it's technological progress that can bail us out of it. On the other hand, there's a thing called unintended consequences. And our backup plan is Mars? I guess we should probably talk about this before we do it, right? So this week on Who Is, it's geoengineering. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is. The podcast from now this where we examine power through the stories of people who have it. Today, a story about one of the most important but scary powers that exists. The power to change the Earth. I had a kind of dumb question about this, so of course, I reached out to Pulitzer Prize winning author of The Sixth Extinction and Unnatural History, Elizabeth Colbert. Just to be very clear, how many Earths do we have? How many opportunities do we have to... to to, to fix this? Well, Sean, you kind of answered that one. Yeah. I mean, as people say, there there is no planet B. And, and the problem that we have fundamentally is that we've been running what's been called a vast unsupervised experiment on planet Earth. Now we realize we don't really like a lot of the results of that experiment. But the only ways that we could counteract it in a lot of cases is by further experimentation. Further experimentation is what this episode is about. From getting carbon out of the atmosphere to reflecting the sun's radiation back out into space, we're going to look at what geoengineering is and how it could fit into tackling this whole climate crisis thing. But let's talk about how we got here. Carbon dioxide pumped into the atmosphere due to human activity. Since the Industrial Revolution, the global concentration of carbon dioxide has increased by 48%. And we've known about this for a long time, since 1896, kind of. But scientists really started putting the pieces together in the 1970s, which is also when one-day Vice President Al Gore started talking about the greenhouse effect, the natural process that, because of all the CO2 we've put in the air, is causing temperatures to rise. Here's then-Congressman Gore in 1985, which is the earliest archival tape I could find. For those unfamiliar with the greenhouse effect, 
It may sound more like a plot for a bad science fiction novel than a serious environmental issue deserving public policy review of the highest order. But given its serious and potentially drastic impacts, Federal research and study efforts must place the greatest priorities on solving the mysteries surrounding the greenhouse effect. Otherwise, future generations may experience a science fiction story that comes true. Decades later, we are, in fact, living through that bad science fiction story. Major warnings started to be issued in the late 80s, and now we've emitted half of the CO2 in history. So we haven't heeded these warnings. On the contrary, we've, we've basically, if you just look at the sort of facts on the ground, we've not just ignored them, we've completely blown them away. We, we just keep increasing our CO2 emissions. So if you, if you look at what's actually going on and you think, well, how are we going to deal with this potential disaster? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to imagine that we're going to be looking for increasingly potentially huge and also potentially risky strategies to deal with, with a very, very, very serious problem. Just to be clear, everything that we're talking about today lives in the context of reducing emissions. I'll say it again. We must reduce emissions. Number one priority is we have to reduce the emissions massively and as soon as possible. That's Janos Pastor, who was recently the guy in charge of climate change at the United Nations. Today, he's executive director of the Carnegie Climate Governance Initiative. Now, the world has actually done quite a bit of emission reductions. Uh, so, and we know from an economic and technological analysis that it is possible to reduce our emissions uh, down to zero. The challenge that we're facing is we're not doing it fast enough. By fast enough, what I mean is that the, at the international level, countries have agreed that the objective should be to limit the global temperature increase to uh, less than 2 degrees centigrade, if possible 1.5 degrees. So in that range of 1.5 to 2 degrees. And uh, unfortunately, that goal is slipping away in front of our eyes literally as we speak. Uh, because we have already committed so much emissions that those goals are unlikely uh, to be possible to be met. And that's why these additional supplementary uh, techniques come into question. So don't buy that Hummer just yet. Geoengineering isn't solving climate change. Even the most drastic options are only going to undo some of the harm we've done and potentially buy us time to detox from carbon. Because we've made so little progress on reducing emissions, well, we're exhausting good options, pun intended. So geoengineering, uh, first of all, it's a, it's a collective term that includes uh, at least two main family of uh, techniques uh, that one can use to address climate uh, the crisis. The first of these is called carbon dioxide removal, which, as its name implies, would take carbon out of the atmosphere and store it in some location. And as we know, one of the main problems of the climate crisis is that we generate carbon dioxide from fossil fuel combustion, and there is simply too much of it in the atmosphere. The concentration of uh, carbon dioxide and of greenhouse gases is too high. So any method that removes carbon from the atmosphere and then stores it permanently uh, underground or some other location helps to reduce the concentration. 
So those are carbon dioxide removal techniques. Uh, they include nature-based approaches like planting more trees. They will absorb carbon. Uh, they include technical means like building machines that act like uh, 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 an, a hair dryer but working the other way, sucking the air in and using chemical methods fixes the carbon dioxide and then you can uh, take it and store it in some location and there are also some hybrid uh, techniques available. So that's carbon removal. Carbon removal would help the actual cause of the climate crisis because it would reduce uh, greenhouse gas concentrations. Carbon removal or carbon capture just means getting the carbon out because we put too much in. And that's just one part of this. There's another part, the scarier sounding stuff, and we'll get to that. But Elizabeth Colbert has actually visited one of the places where carbon capture happens, which means she got to go to Iceland. So carbon capture technology basically usually relies on some kind of chemical that that absorbs CO2 and then you use some kind of heat source usually to sort of reverse that reaction, force off the CO2, collect it, and then you start the process all over again. The units that I visited in Iceland looked like, they look like big air conditioners. Basically, there's just, there's just air moving through them and inside are these chemicals that I alluded to. And what they do in Iceland, which is quite fascinating, the reason why I went to that particular project, is they then take the CO2 that they've collected and they force it deep underground in Iceland's volcanic rock sort of foundation. And there it reacts. The CO2 actually reacts with the rock and mineralizes. So, so you can be uh, confident in that particular case that the CO2 that you've collected from the air uh, is is being permanently stored. That's a, that's a big issue in carbon storage. If you, even if you get it out of the air, what do you do with it? So what do you do with it? I really don't know, obviously. I'm a podcast host. The basic problem is scale. People have known how to take CO2 out of the air for a long time. Ever since we created submarines, you've got to get CO2 out of the air, just the CO2 that the crew is breathing out. Otherwise, it'll build up and the crew will pass out, basically. So on a small scale, we, we've known how to do it for a long time. The, the difficulty is, is scaling up. And, and people have, you have to think, if we were to counteract all of our emissions that way, right, we'd, we'd put them up and then we'd take them down, then the size of the infrastructure required to deal with our carbon emissions would have to be as large as the size of our infrastructure that's putting up CO2. And that's just unimaginably big. So scale is a huge, huge, is, is the major issue here. And then related to that is the fact that this process requires energy. So we, we burn fossil fuels to liberate energy, we get energy that way. And then in order to take it out of the air, you have to use energy. Now, if you're creating energy by burning fossil fuels, then and then using part of that energy to get it back out of the air again, you, you see this sort of paradox there. Did you really think it was going to be that easy? But like I said earlier, there's another part of this. The scarier stuff. Back to Janos Pastor. And the other family of techniques that also is called geoengineering is uh, solar radiation modification, or some people call that solar geoengineering, or just simply they refer to that part of the uh, geoengineering, but call that 
geoengineering. So that's why it's complicated uh, with the terminology. But let's try to be very clear, and I will refer to this as the solar radiation modification. Pastor is distinguishing carbon capture from solar radiation modification. They are two different things, even though people like me, podcast hosts, will refer to both of them as geoengineering. So how would solar radiation modification work? Janos Pastor is going to talk about something called albedo, which is a really cool word that refers to the amount of light that is reflected by a body or surface, like the Earth. These are techniques that would reflect, that would change the albedo, the reflectivity of the Earth, and thereby allow either uh, sunlight to be reflected back into space, or allow more of the infrared heat from the Earth to escape, and in both cases that would result in uh, cooling of the planet. There are also many techniques within solar radiation modification. The simplest one is at the ground level. You paint roofs white, uh, you uh, uh, cover glaciers with plastic sheets. All of these and many other techniques can reflect sunlight, but they will only have a local impact. Uh, then at a sort of uh, regional level, you can do something called marine cloud brightening, uh, which is uh, basically creating clouds above the ocean near coastal areas, and those clouds would, in theory, reflect sunlight back into space and cool, cool that area, that region. Uh, the most controversial and the most researched and most talked about solar radiation modification is uh, what's called stratospheric aerosol injection, uh, where aeroplanes or balloons would be used to spray uh, certain materials into the lower stratosphere at around 20 kilometers altitude and those particles would disperse and then they would reflect sunlight back into space. This sounds like something cooked up by mad scientists or Mr. Burns who literally did this in an episode of The Simpsons, but it actually happens in the real world, like naturally. We know that volcanoes, big volcanic eruptions, have a cooling effect on the planet that's quite well established. And the reason that's the case is because they pour a lot of sulfur dioxide into the air and, and it sort of, if it, if, it, if it gets all the way up into the stratosphere, drifts around, creates this sort of reflective haze that lasts for a year or so and then falls out of the stratosphere. So if we were, if we were gonna do solar geoengineering of that sort, we'd have to keep replenishing the supply. If you're thinking, well, there aren't big volcanic eruptions annually, yes, that's right. And one major issue with doing solar geoengineering is that we don't fully understand what all of the effects would be. But because this has happened in real life, we do have an idea of what it might look like. There is something what scientists call a natural analog to solar radiation modification, and that's a volcanic eruption. When a volcano erupts, uh, you get a big bang, lots of rocks flying, ash, and, and but at the same time, the, the volcanoes emit a, a great deal of sulfur aerosols, which get up into the atmosphere, and these actually cool the planet. And uh, uh, when there is a big eruption, like there was a case in the, the Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines, scientists could actually measure that global temperatures were reduced by about a half a degree for a period of two years because of that eruption. So the concept of solar radiation modification is get these particles up into the uh, uh, stratosphere, 
to direct to to reflect sunlight now how do you do that uh, scientists think that the most uh, easy way would be to specialize to create specialized aeroplanes that can fly into the lower stratosphere and then essentially spray materials it could be sulfuric acid or it could be calcium carbonate that may sound horrifying and yeah sulfuric acid is a very strong chemical that you do not want to consume it's found in things like toilet bowl cleaner on the other hand calcium carbonate is literally the active ingredient in tums there are different materials that scientists are studying to see which one works best and which one has the least additional other negative impacts. But the idea is that they would be sprayed from aeroplanes and then they would be distributed uh, in the Earth's atmosphere through the normal wind, so that would be equally distributed. And they will have a, a residency time of, that depends on the material, but you know, many months or a year, year and a half and uh, then they would have to be replenished uh, on an ongoing basis but then they would reflect sunlight so that's the way it would work and scientists are are fairly confident that that they could recreate the effect that is produced in a volcanic eruption using these methods hopefully without the side effects of a volcanic eruption i've seen those mummy guys from pompeii that looks awful but yeah a lot of this seems pretty drastic this is your mid-episode reminder that none of this works if you don't reduce emissions. So how do carbon removal and solar radiation modification fit into that picture? You have to think of carbon removal not as a, as a way to help to reduce the emissions, because we just need to reduce the emissions, period. But uh, there is already too much carbon in the atmosphere, so we can think of carbon removal as a way to fix the problem of the old way of doing things to clean up, so to speak, uh, get that carbon out of the atmosphere by removing carbon dioxide. So it's, it's an action to fix the past mistakes. And then you could think of solar radiation modification again as not as a solution, but while you're decarbonizing, while you're reducing the emissions, put up uh, maybe a solar radiation modification approach, which uh, gives you time uh, to, to, to solve all those problems. Maybe the temperature increase will be less, maybe for a smaller period of time. And, and so it's a, it's a kind of a, uh, think of it as a band-aid. Uh, we have a problem, we have created a huge problem by past emissions, and uh, the band-aid gives us uh, ability to get rid of the infection and eventually clean up the mess and not, not fall into the same mistake again. It's like a band-aid on the finger of a guy who works in a paper factory. These ideas do have a lovely get-out-of-jail-free card kind of aspect to them, but none of them is simple. I mean, brightening marine clouds, it, it's, it, it sounds sort of fluffy and magical almost, but it would require fleets of ships racing around to do this. It's not like something you can just wave a magic wand. All of them have pretty large logistical challenges even once again that is sort of assuming that they're that they're possible so where's all this going i'll reveal the future of life on earth after this ad i'm sean morrow and this is who is today we're talking about geoengineering Elizabeth Colbert's last book brought the idea of the sixth extinction into the popular lexicon. So 
What's the title of her latest book? So my most recent book is is called Under a White Sky, uh, The Nature of the Future. And it's really about the ways in which people have intervened in in what, for lack of a better term, I'll call natural systems. And now we're faced with the unfortunate fact that we don't like the impacts of a lot of those interventions and we're seeking new interventions to counteract the effects of the old. And will we be able to to correct for some of our previous interventions or, or do we run the risk of just digging ourselves in deeper? And that, that's really the question at the heart of the book. Wait, wait, wait. Roll back to that title. White sky? I'm pretty sure the sky's supposed to be blue. The title comes from the last chapter, which is about sort of the ultimate intervention that people have dreamt up which is, should we try to counteract the effects of climate change, of pouring a lot of CO2 into the atmosphere by re-engineering the stratosphere, by putting reflective particles into the stratosphere to bounce sunlight back to space, and that would have a cooling effect. That's what volcanoes do. And one of the potential side effects, one of the many, many potential side effects of this idea, which is known as solar geoengineering, is that it would change the tint of the sky. The sky would appear whiter. The sky could be leopard print for all I care. I just want my grandchildren to be able to eat and live not underwater. But I guess that whole white sky thing might scare the general public. Think of how much a few blood clots has hurt vaccine messaging. And unlike the COVID-19 vaccines, Doing solar radiation modification could have some pretty serious global side effects. We aren't going to get into that today, because it's really complicated. But scientists don't have a clear sense of how geoengineering would change the climate. And more specifically, where the climate would change, and how. Some places could see droughts, others floods. It's just a lot. But that's why, if we did this, we'd probably want to make sure everybody's on the same page. Here's Janos Pastor. There are many stakeholders who simply do not want to address this issue. They don't want to talk about it because they feel that it is for how, whatever reason they, uh, they think, whether it's right or wrong, but their view is that this technology or these technologies should not be made use of. Therefore, we shouldn't even talk about it. Yeah, it's a hard conversation to open. Remember, there is no backup Earth. I'll give you your pick of metaphor. If we strike out on this Hail Mary, it's checkmate. We do feel that we need to talk about it. Uh, As one colleague um, who has worked on this issue said in the past that even if you want to ban uh, such a technology, you need a governance framework to do so. So, you know, these things are there, they they exist, and uh, even if it's a concept, eventually somebody will build an aeroplane to start spraying if, if you know, there's, there's no law against that. So uh, our, our view is that we do need to converse, we need to talk about it, and, uh, and try to do it as impartially as possible. We definitely need to talk about it. Environmental catastrophe is unfolding all over the planet, and we're barely cutting emissions. Think about the apocalyptic scenario a world with runaway emissions presents. At a sort of scientific level, uh, we talk about the risk-risk framework. In other words, you can't just look at a technology or a technique in isolation and look at the risks that it causes. For example, if you take solar radiation modification, it will come with risks. There is no question about that. It will come with risks. Uh, But it is 
It is a technique that one would implement in order to avoid a 3 to 4 degree centigrade global warming, <laughs> which itself would have risks. And so one has to compare the risks and benefits of, uh, for example, solar radiation modification, not against the world that we're living today, but against the world that we're trying to avoid to have. And so, and, and that's very complicated to do, but it is a, a complex method of risk management where you compare one risk with, uh, and benefits with a set of other risks and uh, benefits, and then you try to make some sense out of that. Now, the, the risks of a world warming to three to four degrees above historical average will be catastrophe. I mean, there have been many studies done on the impacts, economic, environmental, social, etc. But clearly, that would begin to create a world that is, it's not the end of the world, but it would definitely be the end of the world as we know it, because of the huge impact on ecosystems, on people living, and so on. Lots of different parts of the world would become uninhabitable. So clearly, the, the, the impacts would be tremendous. So again, one needs to look at uh, the risks and benefits of these different techniques compared to each other, compared to, to the risks and benefits of the different systems. Now, one other important consideration in this, which I, I alluded to earlier, but let me repeat this again. So we already have today too much carbon in the atmosphere. So even if we stop all the emissions, there is still too much carbon in the atmosphere and there will still be some continued warming as a result of that. So we have to fix that. This is like the past mistakes, errors that we have to, to, to clean up in a sense by removing the carbon. The problem is ultimately all of this carbon. We have to stop putting it into the air. We have to take it out. And while we're going about that, in order for lots of parts of the world to not become uninhabitable, it seems like we may need to begin to consider solar geoengineering. I asked Elizabeth Colbert, how has it gone when people have tried to fix nature in the past, even when fixing nature means just the home of a fish that lives in one little hole in the desert? Allow me to introduce you to the Devil's Hole Pupfish. So the Devil's Hole Pupfish is a small one inch long, very, very beautiful little fish, iridescent blue fish. And it lives, as you suggest, only in one place in a canyon in the Mojave Desert. And where at, at the bottom of the canyon is a, is a pool. And the pool connects to a, a very huge underground aquifer. And in the 60s, people began pumping water out of this aquifer. And as a result, the level of water in the pool started to drop and the fish really started to suffer and have never really recovered. And so it was decided by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that they needed to create a backup population of these fish. And in order to do so, they basically recreated this canyon as, as precisely as possible using 3D laser images of the contours of the rocks and uh, so there's now one population of fish in the real canyon, a small population, but a population, and one population also small in this fake canyon. So why did people create a fake habitat in order to save one little fish? The proximate cause, the sort of legal rationale, is that the Devil's Hole pupfish was one of the first species to be listed under the Endangered Species Act. And once you're listed, there's 
a legal requirement that there be a recovery plan. So this is sort of part of part and parcel of having listed the species. That's the sort of legal reason why this has happened. Now, the sort of ethical reason you could argue is, well, you could say, well, who cares about, you know, this little fish in one little pool? And 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 some people would say that, but I think a very compelling case could be made. The, the devil's whole pupfish survives under extremely difficult conditions. The water is very hot, about 90 degrees, low oxygen. It's a very tough little fish, interestingly enough, even though it's uh, right now very, very threatened. Um, and it, ha- it has, if you consider every species to be an answer to the question of how to survive on planet Earth, then the devil's whole pupfish has evolved a very interesting answer. And to just sort of say, well, shrug it off, who cares about that, seems to me to raise pretty serious both ethical and ecological questions. So I think there's a compelling case, even in the absence of that legal mandate, that we would want to try to save the devil's whole pupfish. Some people might say that people have a lot in common with the devil's whole pupfish. Anyway, how are things going for these little guys? Well, as of recent counts, numbers are up more than 100 from a low of just 35 fish in the wild in 2013. Things look hopeful, maybe. But don't forget, even if we're fixing it now, it was human activity that created this problem in the first place. Aggressive groundwater pumping in the middle of a place where there is very little water to begin with. The middle of the desert. It's a lot easier to ruin an ecosystem than it is to run one. And we just constantly find that these natural processes, I use the word natural loosely here, but biological systems and geochemical systems and geophysical systems, they're just fantastically complicated. They weren't created by a rational intelligence. They were created by through over billions of years of of geological and biological evolution. And when we intervene in them, we, we, we tend to get some pretty nasty surprises. And as we intervene more and more profoundly, that is unfortunately only going to, those, those surprises are probably going to become more and more profound as well. How do we even begin to talk about this? It's like thinking about teaching a toddler about death when the goldfish or grandma dies, but getting all of humanity to cope with not only individual, but collective demise. There's a wide range of approaches to talking about climate change. Scare people until they do something. Give them hope until they do something. But one of the biggest challenges is just getting it to sink in. Shifting our way of imagining the world around us to incorporate this largely invisible calamity that's taking place right now. You could argue that's one of the reasons we've had such a hard time dealing with climate change is you know, thinking in, in terms of some, an, an issue that's that's everywhere at once, we're, we're not really very good at that. Um, and so, you know, we do, we think in terms of stories, we think in terms of of details, um, and, and we're very visual, you know, tactile creatures. So I think that what I'm trying to do, and really in all, you know, what journalists always try to do is, is, is make a story present to people. And that's the reason for talking about, you know, both the macro, which is, you know, the all-encompassing reason you ought to care about it, and, and the micro, which is what people tend to relate to. Yes, the entire planet, and a small hole in the Mojave Desert where a kind of cute little fish lives. So, like, I know from listening to this show, you might just think I'm some cynical, nihilistic douchebag, but I'm going to level with you. I don't want to see the end of humanity. 
I don't want the generation after mine to see it either. So how should I be thinking about all of this? I can't afford therapy, so I asked Elizabeth Colbert. This century, the sort of hope is that the 21st century is going to be the period of maximum human impacts on the planet, maximum human population. Hopefully, CO2 emissions will peak. Hopefully, they'll peak very soon. I don't know if that's the case or not. And the question sort of before us, and this is also really a question at the heart of my most recent book, is what are we going to do in this century to try to leave the world as intact as possible, as is still possible at this point? And the question of whether the answer to some of these forms of intervention is more intervention or not is a, is a very open one. That, that, is, that is a really key and important and vital question. I don't have the answer for that, but it's going to be a major, major question in young people's lives. I, I can kind of guarantee that. We'll be back after this. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is. Is there someone or something you want to hear us do an episode about? Reach out to me on social media at SNMRRW or email me, sm at nowthismedia.com. But anyway, back to the continued existence of life as we know it, or lack thereof. Here's Janos Pastor. We live in a very imperfect world, and this imperfect world does not have a very good track record in addressing and solving global issues uh, very well. That doesn't mean it's impossible, but it is very challenging indeed. The whole conversation around reducing carbon emissions hasn't gone so well, has it? The one big challenge with this technique is that it is likely to be relatively quite cheap. And by cheap, uh, the recent studies seem to indicate that you could do a global uh, program of solar radiation modification, you know, getting the aeroplane, spraying in the stratosphere, doing the monitoring and all that, uh, for uh, less than $10 billion a year. That's literally like no money at all. It's less than the New York City Police Department's total annual budget. Now, $10 billion is a lot of money, but uh, it is not a lot of money when it comes to uh, the kind of numbers that one talks about uh, in terms of addressing climate change when the emission reductions uh, or the carbon removal activities, they would be costing trillions of dollars. Now, you would still have to do that, right? Because we're not talking about instead of, but we're talking about supplementary. But still, solar radiation modification could be done for a relatively few billion dollars a year. Like I said, Solar geoengineering could cost less annually than New York City spends on policing. And you could easily imagine people like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates doing this. And if they can do it, that means even out-of-the-way nations like Canada might be able to afford it. That's the problem. It's cheap enough that a lot of people could do it, but the impact is still global. There are a very big number of what we refer to as governance challenges that come with this. And the governance challenges uh, are basically, because it would be uh, such a global effort, because it would have to be done globally, it cannot be done regionally, really. Yeah? Uh, even if you try to do it regionally in, a, let's say, the Northern Hemisphere, it will have global impacts in terms of the weather and the climate. And therefore, everybody in the world is impacted. 
So the question then arises, who should decide whether or not one should make use of such a technique? There's another problem too. If you start doing this, you can't suddenly stop doing it. Once you start it, you have to keep doing it until the global concentration of greenhouse gases has come down. These solutions cannot be thought of as a solution, but rather as a supplementary action while the world is decarbonizing. The point is that once you get it going, you will probably need to do it for a few decades, possibly even a few generations, depending on how fast the world is able to reduce uh, the greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere. I want to play you a piece of tape you already heard, but with what you know now. There's a time limit on all of this, and a lot of these things are pretty drastic. So to get somewhat simple, just to be very clear, how many Earths do we have? How many opportunities do we have to, 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 to fix this? Well, Sean, you kind of answered that one. Yeah, I mean, as people say, there is no planet B, and the problem that we have fundamentally is that we've been running what's been called a vast unsupervised experiment on planet Earth. Now we realize we don't really like a lot of the results of that experiment, but the only ways that we could counteract it in a lot of cases is by further experimentation, and we don't know where that's going to lead. So we're, we're, in a, we're on a kind of one of the sort of messages of this book under white sky is we're unfortunately on this treadmill where we or in this circular situation where we keep trying one thing to counteract the other thing. And someone who reviewed the book sort of compared it to the old nursery rhyme about the old lady who swallowed a fly, which I think is a very apt comparison. If you don't know the story Elizabeth Colbert is referencing, it's this old lady who keeps swallowing progressively larger animals to solve the original problem of the fly she swallowed. The crazy thing is, we've kind of been geoengineering all along. It just hasn't been intentional. As a, you know, as a species, we are artificially inserting 40 billion tons of CO2 into the atmosphere every year. It isn't on purpose, but is that geoengineering? I mean, on some level, clearly it is. It's inadvertent geoengineering. And then the question of, you know, whether there's a, a significantly higher bar once you start to you know, consciously try to geoengineer to counteract the effects of your having, you know, unwittingly geoengineered. These, these, these are a lot of complicated ethical and governance and, you know, political questions. But I think on some level, it's, it's clearly true. And, you know, we just are not doing it consciously at this point. Although increasingly, you could argue we are doing it consciously. I mean, you know, we, we know or should know that that's the effect of our actions. No species has done more to harm the Earth than us. Unless there's something the dinosaurs did that paleontologists are hiding. In a few short decades, humanity has managed to put Earth on the brink of complete ecological collapse in what has sort of been a giant accidental experiment in geoengineering. Not removing carbon from the air and not solar radiation modification, but massive carbon emissions at scale. So is geoengineering the answer now? Janos Pastor said we're in a risk-risk scenario. And in some ways, that means it's also a lose-lose. We could not do anything and watch our world combust, drown, and hurricane its way to the end of humanity. We could try geoengineering while we work to get to net zero emissions. 
Maybe if we're extremely careful and extremely lucky, it'll work just about perfectly. Or maybe not. We have a lot more in common with those devil's hole pupfish than we might like to think. I just want us to be able to swim around a little longer. Next time on Who Is? Some guy who's running for mayor of New York City. It's Andrew Yang next week. A sincere thank you to our guests, Elizabeth Colbert, who's been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 1999. Colbert is the author of many books, including, most recently, Under a White Sky. And Janos Pastor, Senior Fellow of the Carnegie Council for Ethics and International Affairs and Executive Director of the Carnegie Climate Governance Initiative. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, your host. Michael McDowell is our producer. Laura Tillman is our associate producer. Mona Hassan is our writer. Editing and mixing by Will Stanton. Production support from Pedro Alvira and Amanda Earle. Our executive producers are Nancy Hahn, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Hadakuder. At Now This, Tina Exaros is our chief content officer, and Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president. 